Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoy it. If you're enjoying Pirate Living Podcasts and all the content we bring to you each week, you can support us and buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash pirate living. Other ways you can show your support as well, subscribe and follow Pirate Living Podcast, rate and review our show, and share this podcast with your friends. You can find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Pop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us uh, to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And as usual, keep creating good trouble. And now on to today's episode. Welcome to Pirate Living Podcast. We are your hosts, Kristen and Karan. On this podcast, we are highlighting ordinary people living extraordinary lives. These are pirates who take small, bold actions daily to create social change. Pirate life is all about rebelling and breaking the rules for good. Creating lasting social change starts by first breaking our inner rules. After all, the hardest rules to break are your own. The pirates pirates we highlight have dedicated themselves to creating good trouble. Today, we're chatting with Stephanie Najjar. A political theorist by training, Stephanie aims to intervene at the level of the mind of education or broadening people's horizons and challenging folks to be better critical thinkers. She's a content creator speaking up against the deeply embedded patterns of white supremacy in a new age spaces and works to inspire others, especially women of color, to take up space and to love themselves. So welcome, Stephanie. We are excited to be chatting with you today. Hi. Hi. <laughs> it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so we would love to start by having you share with us the story of your pirate journey and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Um, so I was born in Lebanon in Beirut, um, right at the end of the civil war. And I remember like when I was a kid, I was so distressed about like the state of, of Lebanon, um, how destroyed the buildings were and everything. It was like, like being born in like rubble, like the country was really like a, a no man's land. It was really destroyed. And I kept telling my dad, I was like, dad, like we need, we need a president. We need a president to like fix everything. Like, why don't we have a president? I mean, it was like a fail state. It still is like <laughs> really in bad shape. Um, we didn't have a president for many years. I was like, we need a president to fix everything. Like, why are we? And I felt like this helplessness. I mean, obviously I was just like three, but <laughs> I felt this deep helplessness of like, we need someone to come fix it, to fix, to fix everything. And I realized, you know, um, over the years that, I, I use this metaphor now um, with my students that like there is revolution with a capital R, which is like, you know, these big historical moments where there's like deep social change that happens suddenly. Like if you think of like the Haitian revolution where um, enslaved um, Haitians overthrew like the French, or if we think of the French revolution with the overthrow of the French monarchy, or if we think of the Bolshevik revolution with the overthrow of the Tsars and um, feudal Russia and transitioning into communist Russia. So all of these are big, big moments in history. But there's also another metaphor that's really helpful and empowering for us to think about, especially when we're thinking in terms of social change and we're like, oh my God, like we need things to change. Like how are things going to change? How do we make things better? We can think of revolution with a small R, 
you know, as opposed to big R. And as and this is perfect with your with your framework and your motto that um, revolutionary change can happen in our quotidian daily lives. They can happen um, with with choices that we make. And I like to think of um, this metaphor of like, think of a wall, for instance. The wall can seem really, really strong and hard to break down. But fissure after fissure, crack after crack, these tiny, tiny little cracks can make the, the wall crumble. It doesn't have to be this big crane that comes and destroys the wall. So if we think of like social infrastructures and social change in terms of this wall, small r revolution is like these little choices that we make um, in our ordinary lives. Um, with ordinary people and we're all able to make these um, choices and they all start with like education, conversation, self-awareness, reflection um, and being in, in spaces like these where we, where we talk, where we converse. So um, yeah, this was like, this was just a way to, to give a metaphor about like big R versus small R. Um, I also, so after growing up in Lebanon for a little bit, we moved to the Emirates with my parents. My parents are academics. And uh, so it's no surprise that I also like was an academic for a little bit. Um, but so we lived in, in the Emirates, um, Dubai, which is like right off of uh, the Indian Ocean, where there's pirates there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I was 13 years old, I moved to Montreal. And I've always, always had this um, like social justice side to me. Uh, maybe because I'm a Libra moon so like (laughs) justice is very important to me but I was always like the kid in high school that was like feminist and uh, would get bullied for being a feminist because being a feminist back then like was not popular or cool it was like uncool Um, but I decided to when I finished undergrad I decided to do to do a PhD, and um, I I went to a political theory program at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. So I was there for six years. So although I'm Canadian, I lived in the states for ten years, <clears throat> almost eleven actually. And um, I decided that I wanted to study political theory. Um, why political theory? Because I wanted to understand how the world functions. I wanted to understand power specifically. Um, because what is politics? Politics is not just what we think of in terms of the government. It's not just like elections, although that is a big part of politics. Um, so actually, if you do get a degree in political science, you have to study governments and, um, you know, elections and uh, polls and things like that. But political theory specifically is more interested in power what is power because power is not just in the government it's also within people it's also in relations um this is what we know of in terms of like power dynamics in terms of intersectionality in terms of um how people are going to navigate this world differently based on who they are like that's what that's what power is so it's kind of like extending our analysis of power and politics into the social world so it's not like you know politics is something that you that you look at out there that's just like on TV, on CNN, like no, politics and power is everywhere. It's diffuse, it's in our lives, it's in our relationships and it's like how we navigate the world. So um, I studied that for, for a long time. I specialized in like Marxism. So because I really wanted to understand like capitalism and how that worked. Um, but, you know, as a, as a theorist, I have like broad training in, in everything from, 
um, you know, like old school political theory, like Aristotle and Plato, all the way into like decolonial political thought, Marxist political thought, all of that stuff that I'm more uh, interested in. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what what are you doing now? So you've, you were in that program, and then what? Where has that led you to? So I was in that program until 2021, at which point I decided to take a leave of absence because I started the program when I was quite young, you know, immediately after undergrad, I decided I'm not done with school. I'm not done with thinking. I need more time to think. Um, so, and, you know, because both of my parents are academics, like I really just didn't know what else there was out there for me. Um, but I realized that especially like I'm, I'm studying all this like, you know, cool stuff, radical stuff, but I'm like, I feel so drained and my self-confidence was really getting eroded by academia. Like I felt really small and shrunken and unseen. Um, I started out, you know, at 23 in the PhD, like such as I was so strong and confident and taking up space. And by the end, like, six years later, I was really deflated and definitely burnt out, um, unhappy and really understimulated. I was like actually kind of bored, uh, because I just, I just, yeah. I, and now, you know, I took a, so I took a year off and I just like tried to explore to see like what, what else is out there for me. Um, and I spent most of that year, uh, rebuilding my self-confidence because I was really, really low self-esteem at that point because I was like what else there's nothing out there for me there's nothing that I bring to the table I'm so useless like I think there was just this sense of being really disconnected from the world and obviously I was also like 29 and had been in school all my life so you know at the same time all my friends and people my peers of my age you know they're working their way up in the world and I'm like I'm still in school so that also contributed to like my lower self-esteem. Um, so I decided to take some time off and that's, um, and just do self-care, really just do self-care. And that's when uh, I was doing TikTok for self-care. I was just like doing little skits and dancing. And I thought the whole platform was really a space of healing for me, a space of joy. I was getting served content. I was really like right up my alley. Um, and really felt very connected to the platform. So after being on TikTok, I started being on TikTok like just as a viewer, as a consumer um, in 2020. So after a couple of years of really being on it, I was like, okay, I'm just going to start creating now. I have all this free time because I'm on a sabbatical. Um, and luckily, I'm very, very lucky to have a partner, my wife, who uh, is working and was able to encourage me and support me in, in uh, helping me like basically get out of this very like stuffy and asphyxiating environment that was academia and I I needed that help I would not I think I would have kept going and be unhappy so thankfully it was good to have my partner who's not an academic at all so she was able to be like um okay you're clearly unhappy like let's get you out of here so I really it was really good to have that kind of like grounding support to kind of like pull me out like throw me this lifeboat and be like okay let's you know you don't have to keep doing this if you're not happy was there, so, sorry to interrupt, yes, was there something about the program or the environment that like in those six years that you would change from like this confident woman mm-hmm. to someone that wasn't? 
Yeah, I mean, now that I'm processing it, definitely. The the environment. I was first of all in a very male-dominated space. Uh, there were like just a handful of women, and let alone like women of color, let alone like queer people. Um, political theory is very male-dominated. It's not like one. Of, it's not like if I was. Um, in gender studies or in anthropology where there's a lot more diversity. Mm -hmm. Political theory is notoriously super masculine and super white. And I think um, uh, the discipline itself is quite like specific. You have to constantly be criticizing. Like that's kind of like part of the exercise of political theory is you have to be constantly saying like, this is what's wrong and this is how I'm gonna make it better. Mm -hmm. And I think as a, as an academic, I was much more interested in like spotting patterns or, you know, I was gravitating a lot into like intellectual history and how thoughts traveled and how thoughts evolved and how like, just like, I just, this, the discipline itself required me to show up in this like very specific way that was, that was eventually draining. So when time uh, came to write my dissertation and having to write a dissertation and constantly like prove that you're this is your argument and this is why it's better um it drains me and that's the thing with also publications like publications like you have to basically say like okay this is this is my argument and this is why it's special and this is why it's different and this is my literature review and this is where I position myself and I was like this is so exhausting I just want to learn I just want to think I think I just did not do well with that particular like the nature of the dissertation mm -hmm. exercise um, and also academia is very old-fashioned like I don't think in most departments have not evolved to reflect like the current world that we live in so the dissertation I just think of it as a very antiquated exercise um, that can fit well with some people um, but it doesn't fit well with me like I'm too I'm too abstract and creative and social to actually like I would not I didn't enjoy writing a dissertation it was too solitary uh it was too like formulaic and like yeah structured there was like mm -hmm. there's a there's a structure to it that I did not want to follow mm -hmm. um I think some places now like you can actually do a podcast for your dissertation or you can write multiple articles for your dissertation it's like honestly if there was that diversity of um exercises like that I would have picked a podcast or I would have picked something that involved like public speaking or because <clears throat> that's my strength mm -hmm. uh so so a lot of things but like the I also felt very precarious at a university like Johns Hopkins we you'd think that a university that affluent would actually care about its grad students but it did not and um during the pandemic there was very little support for us like no like extra kind of relief um for the things that we were going through um we actually didn't even have for the longest time we had like a really bad like healthcare thing um and then the grad students started to organize so we you know there was as soon as the university felt like there was a possibility that like maybe the grad students would unionize that's when they really like upgraded our healthcare and they gave mm -hmm. us like dental and they gave us a vision you know what I mean so mm -hmm. like I felt just so like I was working so hard for the university and I felt so um I felt like expendable mm -hmm. I really felt like expendable labor and I did not, I did not like that. <laughs> and I, I, I do that a lot where I, if I feel underappreciated or if I feel like I'm being like exploited in some way, I tend to 
get angry. Um, that's how I feel towards TikTok now. But I'm like, why is this? Like, what's this? This is so unfair. Like I'm mm-hmm. here, I am fighting for justice, but then me myself, like my my mental health and my body is being, you know, like de- is deteriorating because of the environment that I'm in. So it's just like all this like compounded factors. I um with similar like what you were saying at the beginning of the pandemic, I got I was getting angry. <laughs> I worked in childcare, so teaching, but like childcare is viewed as lower even than a classroom teacher. And like schools were shutting down, classroom teachers were able to go home, work from home, but we were still expected to show up. And there were a bunch of um, teachers, childcare workers that were starting to get upset. Like, why do we not have a choice here? And we were like so close to people were going to riot and start up trying to get a union for childcare workers. And then they came along and were like, actually, you can choose not to work. You can go on furlough if you want and we'll pay you because they at this time thought it was only going to be two weeks. We'll pay you for the two weeks um, so you can go home and everything like I was like, go for it, fight. Like, I know I'm quitting this job in six months, so I'll stand behind you, <laughs> but I also am going to keep working here for six months, but fight. And then everything just went away just like that. And I was like, wow, we really gave in quickly to just being told you can go home and get paid for two weeks. And I was like, it just takes a little bit um, for people to stop with the fight. And I was like, come on guys. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, it's interesting in that aspect too, that the human humanity side of it. Um, just going back to TikTok, since we kind of started this conversation um, you know, before we started the podcast. And I mean, that is how I found you on TikTok. You showed up on my For You page. And um, so how did TikTok go? How did you go from being, you know, a consumer on TikTok to creating the content that you do now? It happened uh, organically and totally accidentally. Um, So, okay. I, this is like maybe a little bit embarrassing, but I think it's important for me to talk about it because I think this happens a lot in the spirituality space. Like we, everyone in the spirituality space that I know has some kind of like embarrassing little adventure. So for me, um, so, you know, I took this year, the sabbatical to explore and I really got sucked into this new age thing called human design. Uh, do you know about it? Have you mm-hmm. heard about human design? We've talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So um, human design, I think, appealed to me at that time because I was so uncertain about my life and so unsure about myself. I was literally did not know what to, like I, my, my self-esteem, my sense of self, my self-concept was so eroded by academia that I really relied on the tool of human design to help me like reconnect to myself and to realize like, oh, okay, like I have, I have good things going for me. Cause that's the system, the human design system. Like you input like your birth information and it comes out. And if you get a reading, you learn like, oh, the, this is your, these are your energy patterns. Like you have a defined like throat center. So therefore that means that you're like a really strong, you know, public speaker or like, 
you have a defined like third eye so it means like you have a really unique perspective on the world so obviously like I got a human design reading and I was like oh my god that's so true this is so these are things about me that I had forgotten or that you know there's something very comforting about someone that you don't know like saying these things out to you and you're like oh yeah yeah like it was very very comforting but I kind of took it further and decided to study it Um, and I think it came from this place of like, I just couldn't get enough of it. I just constantly needed more human design insight in my life, uh, because I think it was part of like my process of rebuilding, but that's the thing. The danger is like when a crutch becomes like something that you really rely on. Mm -hmm. So I got really into it and I was like, to the point where I was like taking courses and I was like taking notes and I had like notebooks full of human design notes, um, and then I eventually started uh, wanting to offer human design readings. And I think I there was a point in time where I was like, oh, maybe I'll become like a spiritual uh, human design reader, like a spiritual coach or something like that. So, um, yeah, and I, I met someone on TikTok recently who was also on this. We call it like the grad, the grad school to spiritual pipeline. Um <laughs> about how like you know and I've, I've I've been seeing it more and more like now that I've you know see it, it's hard to unsee but anyway mm-hmm. so I was definitely on that pipeline um and so my Instagram at that time was really really full of like human design astrology tarot all sorts of like woo-woo stuff um with a mixture of like healthy spirituality and a mixture of like toxic spirituality but I couldn't see it back then I couldn't mm-hmm. see what was toxic about it yet so anyway um at that point, TikTok was completely separate. It was a very personal account. I had like 50 followers. I didn't even know where those 50 followers came from. <laughs> um, and I was just like posting things depending on my mood. Like it was just creative based. It was like depending on what I felt like doing, I did. So one day on my Instagram, I saw someone post a, do, do a post about like money being energy. And that's when like the Marxist in me like kicked in and I was like really angry. I was like, that's not true. Money is not energy. Like we live in capitalism. Uh, Money is compensation for waged labor. And when we talk about money's energy, we completely ignore and erase like the exploitation that is built into capitalism. And we just end up like pretending that like making money is just a question of like energy and like good attitude and good thoughts. And so I just was so angry. And um, to channel that, to work through my feelings, I did a, po- I did a TikTok. About it. Um, mm-hmm. There was a trend, a very like, just, you know, a fun trend. that was like, oh, that's perfect for what I want to say. So I just used that trend, uh, said the thing. And for the first time, I went viral. So this was like in April with that post. It was, I don't know, I think it was like perfect alignment of like, it was a short video. It was something important that people needed to hear. So the views were doing well. And so I just posted it and like left my phone away, like put it away and like was doing stuff. And I we were watching um, Only Murders in the Building, I think with my sister and my and my wife. And um, I picked up my phone, looked at it again, and for the I knew it was going viral because my views had never gone like beyond like 500 views. So at that point, I was like at you know maybe like 5,000, and I was so excited. I was like, oh my god! And then like I'd refresh the page, and we're at like 8,000, and like 10 minutes later, we're at 10,000. It was like crazy. Um, by the time I woke up the next day, we were at like 30,000. I was like, okay, this is crazy. And I was getting hundreds and hundreds of comments and mostly people being like, thank you. 
so much. Like you're so right. Money is not energy. Um, and then it started getting ugly because that's what happens with viral is like you, your content gets served, not just to people who agree with you, but also people who disagree with you because, you know, the post is doing really well. So it's generating controversies, generating conversation. So then I had a lot of people being like, no money is energy. Like you just don't know what you're talking about. Like, so then, you know, this was my first time. So I basically responded to every single comment. Like mm-hmm. if you go back to that video, I think I have like close to 600 comments on there. Um, and that's when I realized, oh my gosh, like I have a lot to say. Um, and I just, I want to keep, I want to keep saying things. So then I kept saying things, um, mostly through dancing at first, but then I was, I, people wanted more like explanation videos. So then I did more explanation videos. Things kept doing well. So I just kept doing it. Um, and in doing so, I think the reason why I kept doing it is it was very healing for me as a teacher who left academia to realize that I still can teach and can educate outside of academia in a way that feels very democratic and accessible and not stuffy. So I just kept doing it because I was like, oh my God, this is really fun because I love mm-hmm. teaching and I hadn't done it in a while, but I'm doing it in a way that feels relevant. And it's on this platform that has a lot of like people my age and young people who are curious and interested and engaged and the teacher in me loves engagement so I was like okay people are engaging I'm happy I'll keep I'll keep responding and like educating um and that's kind of how I started building a a community on TikTok completely by accident but like from this place of like wanting to uh start processing being in that spiritual space that I had been in Mm -hmm. do you what um do you have a post that you made that has been the most controversial? Hmm. Or a general topic that you return to that's the most yeah. controversial? I would say I have like a few that are that generate a lot of controversy. The first one is manifestation. Because um I think there's still a lot of attachment to the concept of manifestation people feel very strongly about it so when I start saying you know listen like manifestation it really it's it's not like a spiritual law it's just like made up it's made up by white men in the 1800s who basically decided to like appropriate like um you know like a Hindu concept but it's not really appropriation, like they appropriated it and distorted it to the point that it's unrecognizable. Um, and they tried to like mix it with like Christianity. And basically it's this idea that your mind, mind is over matter. So you can use your mind and think better thoughts and think differently and undo like the limiting beliefs that you have and undo the stories you tell yourself so that you can manifest a different reality. Um, and so when I tell people like, hey, listen, like thoughts are not enough in the society that we live in because there are actual like systemic barriers that you can have the best thoughts, you can have the best attitude. But if you're, you know, depending on where you're at in life, depending on your social and economic status, depending on your race, depending on the color of your skin, depending on all these different things, your gender, like these are also going to impact how you navigate life. But this concept of manifestation gains a lot of traction with white upper middle class folks because it's true for white folks who don't have systemic barriers, 
thoughts are the only thing that might be in the way but that's not true for other people so i kind of point out like the whiteness of manifestation like how rooted in whiteness it is and that generates a lot of feelings um a lot of a lot of like angry feelings that get uh, angry feelings but at the same time uh like gratitude people being like thank you so much because uh i knew something was icky about manifestation i just didn't know how to put the words to it mm -hmm. so that's also like my job as a teacher political theorist like putting words to something is literally like what i what i why what I, why i'm here and what i do so i'm like yes you're you're welcome like that's that that makes me so happy to hear that i'm able to help you like articulate the the icky feeling mm -hmm. um so manifestation is definitely like very emotional and then the other emotional topic is um the divine feminine when i talk about like the divine feminine um as a 1950s like cosplay of gender roles that are and a neoconservative backlash to like queer and feminist like progress mm -hmm. um people get really emotional and they're like no it, like the divine feminine is not about gender it's just about energy it's about like reconnecting um to the softness side because we live in patriarchy and patriarchy just doesn't want us to uh connect to that feminine and it demonizes the feminine so it's all about reconnecting to the feminine and uh in theory it sounds like a good project but like once you start uh peeling the layers and deconstructing the divine feminine like can have issues as well so i think um I think there just there needs to be deeper like social science conversations to the spiritual space mm -hmm. um and that's starting that's really mm -hmm. starting and I think a lot of it is originating on TikTok because there's a community of like critical people critical thinkers who also are spiritual at the same time who are interested in bridging the two but uh, you know currently the space is really lacking um like critical thinking and um like a critical exploration of the concepts people just like take them at face value and it's like no hold on like let's unpack this because um not just because we were trying to be like annoying but because there is a spiritual to alt-right pipeline that is very established mm -hmm. so we can't just you know take these concepts at face value and not question them because clearly there is a there is a highway that's happening and it's not happening out of a, it's not a coincidence mm -hmm. it's not a coincidence because these these concepts are actually neoconservative but they're disguised as spiritual and woo woo um but once you start unpacking them the neoconservative quality of it becomes very clear and that's why it's no surprise that you end up with spiritual influencers like saying really transphobic things or um really sexist things etc etc Mm -hmm. So yeah, can we dig more into that uh, spirituality is, you know, alt, alt right pipeline, like, where, like, where are the origins of that? Do you think and like, how did this become a thing? That's a really good question uh, that I ask myself as well. <laughs> like, how did it originate? Um, so we talk about this in my in my course like intro to decolonizing spirituality so when we think of like the history of the new age we think of like counterculture we think of these like hippie circles in the 70s and psychedelics and like um 
and to a certain extent it's true i think there was a time where um hippies were actually counterculture and they were anti-capitalist and they had like a critique of capitalism um but it was always a predominantly white space and as with you know predominantly white spaces in general like we're going to have issues with like whiteness so the whiteness I think from the very beginning of the new age was never fully examined or uh, brought under a microscope a microscope sorry for like examination so so from the very beginning we have like whiteness issues and by that I mean like zero questioning about the concepts that are being brought into the new age um acting like acting like these are concepts that are universal um and spiritual and not really um giving credit to the cultures that they come from first of all and second of all there's a distortion of the concepts so that they can fit into like a western audience and they can make sense to a western like lens mm -hmm. so no one we don't really talk about the distortion of the concept and um the the third element Sorry, I'm losing. I'm losing track of my. <laughs> we do it all the time. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're perfectly imperfect over here. <laughs> um. So okay. Anyway, this all is to say that there there's appropriation um, that is being unexamined. Um, there is also like this erase er erasing the the root of the thing that is being you know appropriated. So using um, concepts without saying oh this is from like this culture this is from that culture just acting like it's spiritual and we see this we still see this to this day where you say like just because you say something spiritual doesn't mean you absolve it of like contemporary politics so um like i'm thinking of an example like i'm thinking of an example of this like spiritual influencer who um says you know claims like twerking and uh oriental like dancing belly dancing is healthy for uh the root chakra it's grounding it like regulates your nervous system it helps you release uh, uh fear it helps you release emotions because emotions are quote unquote stored in the hips so just because you say something spiritual doesn't mean you're absolved of cultural appropriation and doesn't mean that you don't have to examine the cultural appropriation that comes with building an entire business empire on twerking and belly dancing, which are both don't belong to you as a culture. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we see this trend often. We're saying something is spiritual. Therefore, I'm not going to examine the political implications of that. Uh, another example, like saying, okay, like saging and Palo Santo uh, cleanses, it cleanses the room, you know, it cleanses the room of negative energy. Um, so that that's a spiritual claim. And so therefore, if we're saying if we're talking about energy, we don't have to talk about, you know, the the destruction of the Amazon forest and the all the the cultural appropriation and theft of indigenous people that's happening. And we don't even talk about indigenous people's culture um, and indigenous people like when we when people sell Palo Santo, like no one's talking about like this being an indigenous practice or um, there's this like willful forgetfulness and that you know just being sold uh in you know these like spiritual spaces and so there's like this double erasure there's like the cultural appropriation but then also like we forget that indigenous people still use these tools and still have these practices that um revolve around these like these tools so um 
so in terms so so it becomes very easy so where i'm trying to get that mm-hmm. point that i'm trying to get to with this is that when you say something spiritual somehow it creates this like um suspension like you're all of a sudden in a different dimension so you don't have to examine the problems of this dimension mm-hmm. you don't have to talk about racism you don't have to talk about uh co- colonization and cultural appropriation and like whiteness um you know taking from other people right so it's like oh okay so this this is very comforting this idea of not having to examine our responsibility is very comforting and becomes a breeding ground for the people who also agree with that kind of ideology mm-hmm. so neoconservative um white supremacists like love that stuff because it's like yeah we don't want we don't want to examine we don't want to mm-hmm. examine our mm-hmm. our whiteness we don't want to question we don't, we don't want to do the work right so then it's like um you have you have a convergence ideological convergence between spiritualists who uh turn their gaze away from the responsibility and um white supremacists and like neo-fascists and like people on the alt-right pipeline who also don't want to examine their responsibility so you see how so like ideologically theoretically there's already a point of connection between the two and that's why there's kind of like been a revolving door between the two um neo ne- like alt writers are going to find themselves very comfortable in spiritual spaces because no one talks about politics no one talks about um accountability and uh you know race and and the f- so, so so you see how already there's a convergence so mm-hmm. I, I don't know like when it happened exactly or like when the pipeline became established but I can tell you that theoretically the pipeline is like it was already there in the sense of just like the two have a lot of their mirrors of each other in a mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. And, and so historically, you know, we still we might still have this image of the new age being counterculture, but it became it became conservative and right wing really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that pipeline is still there and it's thriving today with people coming in at different points of entry. There is, um, it's one pipeline, but there's many, many different points of entry, um, you know, and so like the divine feminine being one of them, like maybe someone gets drawn into spirituality or interested in spirituality because they're um, feeling disconnected from their femininity or they feel burnt out because capitalism is burning them out. And so the idea of the divine feminine feels very resonant because they're like, yeah, I need to connect to my softness. I don't feel soft enough. I feel like I've, I'm always like, external and I want to become more internal but then the next thing you know that happens is you you get exposed to this rhetoric that like um you know the divine feminine there's only like there's only feminine and masculine and like there is no possibility of of embodying both at the same time it's very the the feminine masculine language is very very binary Mm -hmm. so of course like queer people and people who um don't think of themselves in this binary way or they don't think of energy as binary like you know what about being masculine and feminine like mm-hmm. it just that and is really like not possible in that world so mm-hmm. then you know you end up with spiritual influencers who say very transphobic things that like you know that that I won't like repeat here but like it's just um recently I think like a month ago there was an outburst on TikTok where an influencer said something like that and people were so surprised and mm-hmm. I was like why are you surprised this is a symptom of the divine feminine creating a very deep binary so if you buy into the divine feminine your next thing you know further down the pipeline 
you're setting yourself up ideologically for thinking that like trans people are somehow like um abnormal because they're not embodying that like binary mm-hmm. so you, you see what you see how that mm-hmm. creates so you know there's many many different points of entry uh that can seem you know um spiritual but then you know and human design honestly like human design is is one of them too i i wasn't really human design yoga like all of these spaces um can can start you know pulling you down um i wasn't so deep into human design to see the to see the parts but uh theoretically i could see the parts and i've been i've been doing more content on human design on on tiktok and um every time i do content i get so much engagement to the point that it's, it's like archival evidence for me because people share their experiences as well mm. so I learn a lot mm. I learn a lot from people from the world just like saying oh this happened to me this is what happened like mm. you know so um someone was telling me that like they were do- they were in the human design world and like they listened to one of the lectures of the founder um and there's a lot of like cultic cultic um obsession with the founder Hmm. Uh, who renamed himself by the way he's like this guy from from montreal but he renamed himself ra uruhu Hmm. and like everyone in the human design world quotes him and reads him and listens to his lectures so at one point someone in the comments was like yeah i listened to a lecture of ra uruhu and he was basically talking about like slaves you know like Mm -hmm. um modern modern you know so I was, I was like okay I'm not surprised I'm not surprised at all like every, all of these new age spaces like kind of can can take you down that road really fast mm-hmm. um yeah and we see we see this also in my in my intro to decolonizing spirituality class where um any kind of system personality system that's really obsessed with classification um is a potential red flag because where does classification come from like call like in terms of uh, with colonization mm-hmm. classification was a huge point of concern and obsession saying like oh you're white or like you're a quarter this and you're an eighth this and like mm-hmm. in order to create when you create classifications you also create hierarchy and um mm-hmm. when you create hierarchy you basically say one person's better than the other and so you also create um space for like subjugating the people who are like lower in the hierarchy you know so like classification uh, obsessions with purity miscegenation um all of these things are, are tied to that kind of like obsession with like classifying people so like in these personality systems where there are classifications um they people say like yeah no everyone's equal but it's like no it's very clear that when you read the the personalities of human design like there is one category in particular that is like hoisted as like the best right Mm -hmm. like there's five energy types in human design and manifestors were always the ones that were like so special Mm -hmm. so already like you know at the surface it seems like oh yeah this is really nice and it's comforting and it's supportive but like if you get really into it and start unpacking like that's when you start seeing you know you see problems well and actually just wanted to speak to like the whole um with the founder and like how these things turn into like, like cult, like mm-hmm. status. Right. And I, I, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, ne- uh, Nexium. Sorry. I just had extra dogs running into my house. <laughs> um, Nexium, which was kind of started out. I don't know if it was, I don't oh. think it was just Canadian. Um, 
It's the um, one that's all the Roman numerals, right? That yeah, neck, and, yeah. <laughs> and how it started off as like a personal development, um, very much like um, what's that landmark type thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and um, I was um, listening to the story of a Vancouver woman who got really into the Nexium um, organization and started the Vancouver chapter, um, and how it essentially evolved into like this sex cult where um all of these women were being recruited um for the leader of nexium um and branded and all of these really weird crazy shit that was going on all in the name of like personal development mm -hmm. and of course then money making and making money for this like the leader who i believe also renamed himself i can't remember exactly mm -hmm. but how this personal development basically turned into like this cult um so yeah what you were talking about with the um the human design like i had no idea about the founder or anything like that but it, it seems to be such a uh, a common thing like you mm -hmm. said where they turn into this like cult like organizations well like, even lululemon like that's a cult-like organization, but it's <laughs> run by a misogynistic male who, yeah. Mm -hmm. So like, he's, yeah, I think he's gone now, isn't he? Possibly. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, also like, Vancouver. Yeah. We're, we're good what at about Vancouver. <laughs> we're good at creating cults apparently. <laughs> so is Oregon. <laughs> yeah. And I think also what's interesting with um, these spaces, personal development spaces, um, especially ones that are, have their own, systems is that they create like a language for how to understand the world so at one point when I was like so deep into human design like I would filter the world through the system itself to so be like oh yeah like she's reacting like this because she has an open energy an open throat energy center and like my closed throat is impacting her um oh like this person is like tired because she has an emotional solar plexus like you know like all these things that um, when you start living through that lens and it becomes your language and it really just like takes up your entire brain space, first of all, you don't have a lot of space left for uh, seeing the world through a different lens, which is like maybe an anti-capitalist lens or a social justice mm -hmm. lens. Like maybe this person's not tired because of like an open solar plexus. Maybe this person's tired because of like being burnt out of work. Like it just mm -hmm. becomes... Um, uh, it, it creates this very narrow and limiting framework through which you interpret everything. And it's very individual. It's hyper individualistic. Like you don't see things anymore through like a social lens or a big picture lens. You see everything through like that, like mm -hmm. micro energetic, energetic lens. And um, so the, so it's very like navel gazy and um to me, it feels it's it's a form of depoliticizing people because it's mm -hmm. like, oh, you're just so concerned about like energy centers and channels and stuff. And you're not thinking about like the big picture situations that are happening. Um, so that's also like part of, you know, and, and in addition to that, you have your own language that can create like this. It, it can also prepare and prime for this like cultic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, landscape because you just have the same language as the other people who are also in that space with you. And you're all living in your same bubble, and it's and that bubble is that is that system. Mm -hmm. So, and on that too, there's there's a difference between like using like you said in the beginning um, with human design, using it as a tool, and that tool then becoming more than just a crutch. It becomes like your leg now, um, mm -hmm. and learn yeah, 
it's good to know though too that 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 the tools like you can take it and take little bits of it that like hey this helps me learn a little bit about me so that I can get out of my own head and um navigate the world a little more but also being aware like yeah let's you don't have to deep dive into the cult part of it too and being aware where it comes from as well like all right well this this doesn't have the best background to it so what going into what is my responsibility what is my accountability here in this now that I have learned about this like where am I accountable so yeah can we talk more on the accountability part with it Mm. I would love to because I think about this all the time Um, I decided to stop offering human design readings um for multiple reasons like I was like okay well first of all I want to focus on being a teacher and now that I have an audience of people who want to learn from me I'm like great I I want to be a teacher I'm qualified to um and that's you know something I'm I enjoy so but I I think I decided to just avoid the problem of human design because I was like it's so much responsibility to be in a room and tell people what you see from a chart especially someone that you don't know like there's already this like power dynamic that is established where they're coming to me for answers about themselves like mm-hmm. and that's that's tough like that's a tough setup but I I um I know that it can be helpful and because it was helpful for me, but at the same time, it became addictive to me really fast. And the reason why I'm using the word addictive is because um, I never really thought of it as an addiction until I had a student in my class who um, was telling me about how she was addicted to psychic readings. Like, and she was getting, uh, you know, like multiple readings a day. And spending mm-hmm. thousands of dollars every week getting readings. Um, I, it wasn't that bad for me, but I was getting human design readings anytime I could. Like I would trade them with people, be like, hey, I'll give you a human design reading if you can give me an astrology reading. Like I was getting, you know, I was doing readings all the time. And I just wanted, it just was like this, this crutch of like, okay, I need these readings to like remember like my worth. Mm-hmm or connect to my worth and it just was not it was not healthy like one reading is is fine I think you know um but more it becomes like like I would start asking the question of like why why are you getting so many readings Mm -hmm. like what's what's up so that's number one so I was like okay I don't want to be kind of like a gateway to like introducing people to a tool that might be they might become dependent on and then then in this case it's not just human design this can be like anything it can Mm -hmm. be like um you know like psychic readings it could be uh astrology it could be tarot you know I, I didn't want to be in a position where I would like encourage that kind of dependency I wanted to create a space where people can feel supported but I was like I actually don't know I'm not entirely sure if this is supportive so that's the first thing um and then the second thing is I spent I found myself spending a lot of time in the reading itself prefacing it to people being like hey um just so you know like this is a new age tool it was like invented in the 90s like I think it's helpful to give like the history to them like it's just a computer tool like what like take it as a form of an invitation for deeper reflection on you and your patterns. Mm. So I really tried to decenter like this tool and not make it seem like it was this 
like mysterious and powerful almighty thing which you can definitely see sometimes in in human design readings being like get your human Mm. design reading and like your life will change you know that kind of thing I think is that language I think is predatory to say like oh your life's gonna change like just pay like $300 for a reading and then you'll you know you'll get all the answers that you need because that's not true like it it doesn't work like like that like Mm -hmm. you're not gonna get all the answers Mm -hmm. and that that I felt I felt like it was predatory for me too because I was also a consumer of this information um I one time spent like $200 uh for this money formula this human design money making formula where this person like sent me an uh, an analysis of like what I needed to do to uh, make money based on my human design and like basically the take-home was like just journal about all the things that you want and the things will happen so that was you know I felt really (laughs) upset afterwards because I was like Mm -hmm. I can't believe I spent $200 on this and um, again like there was this manifestation language of like oh just journal just say what it is that you want journal about it every day and it will happen and Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous because I look back at my journal and I did it for like three days and I was like, what is this? Like, why am I journaling about like how much money I want in my bank account? Like it just, it just felt very like not me. It felt very, I didn't feel like myself, like looking back, I was like, what is this? But anyway, um, so all this to say that I feel these, I feel these questions deeply about accountability and about the ethics of being a guide and a mentor, because that line between guiding and then becoming um, a person on, on which someone can like really rely on and depend on, I think is, is a really, like, it's a really delicate line. And um, I was like, you know what? I just, to me, it's not worth it. It's going to haunt me forever. (laughs) So I was like, I would rather just walk away and do something else that is less uh, delicate. And even though I still feel that line, I still walk that line as a content creator. I feel it less though. I feel it less than if I was like, one-on-one in a one-on-one relationship because I feel like yeah there's there's some you know but the thing on the flip side is that one-on-one relationship there's more space for nuance Mm -hmm. there's more space for uh developing and fostering and creating the relationship that is healthy versus you know also content creation it's it's a whole different beast content creation uh, because you know that's how spiritual influencers like gain a lot of clout and followers and people who are sometimes like in vulnerable times in their life where they they are looking for answers so already like looking for answers is going to prime you towards gravitating towards people that like already project like the whole like I have it all figured out I'm going to give you the answers and that's what happened to me when I was you know in this like sabbatical year leaving academia and feeling very lost I was a prime prime uh candidate for like the kind of like answers that human design provides mm-hmm. and kind of like went down that path um and it ultimately was not and it's interesting because now like I feel like I kind of came out of that haze and I and I don't need human design anymore and I don't gravitate towards it anymore and I completely like erased it from my brain like I forgot I mean I forgot 90% of everything that I studied I just took it out I was like okay I don't need you file that's you trash <laughs> yeah so yeah, there's, oh go sorry. ahead Crown. no, no <laughs> I was gonna say there's been a, a lot of like a lot of tools along the way of like me learning and growing where it's like this has been helpful to give me some information to help me move get out of my head but yeah um what taking it to and then just 
being like, this is my identity now and not really thinking too much about where that's going. It's been something that has been a conversation in my head with my husband too of like, okay, yeah, this has helped me, but now like, how do I now use what? this tool? Where, yeah. Now what, um, <laughs> and what steps can I take next? Yeah. And go ahead, Crown. What were you going to say? I don't remember. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like now, now what? Like I, I, I want to learn more. I want to do better in this world, which part of that is learning about me and how I'm navigating the world. But then now, now what? Now, how do I navigate the world in an ethical way, in a humane way, in a way that isn't based on colonialism and white supremacy as well? That's such a real question. And um, I think it's, I think it's very cool that you're both life coaches and that you're asking these questions and you're interested. I, I always, I think I, I attract um, people in the healing spiritual industry that are interested in like remaining in that profession, but don't want to do it in this like preachy priestly way of like mm -hmm. I'm the leader I'm just gonna tell you what to think I'm just gonna because then ultimately that just kind of like repackages uh this like Christian and also colonial format of uh knowledge transference like it's this idea that um the teacher the spiritual teacher is on a pedestal and knows everything and has it all figured out and is therefore like hierarchically like higher than their followers and then therefore the followers just need to look up like this kind of like uh unilateral unilateral like power dynamic is very colonial because think about like colonization it was like you know like um european countries going into the rest of the world and saying i'm better than you and I'm going to take this country or I'm going to take this land and make it mine and extract from it and you guys are all inferior, like the idea of like, um, you know, Africans, indigenous people, people from all around the world were viewed as quote unquote primitives or quote unquote savages, that kind of inferiority, therefore, created the sense that like white, the, the, the white man had this like civilizing purpose in the rest of the world. So anyway, all this to say, like, we see that recycled in uh leadership in the idea of like spiritual leadership that like one person or a group of people are enlightened and awakened and superior and they have all the tools to help other people it's like very like one way so i think a way to decolonize that leadership dynamic is to actually say no it's not one way it's not like i'm just going to teach you i also have something to learn from you and let's try to equalize that relationship so instead of it being like one uh eyes above the other we're trying to democratize it and equalize it and say, actually, we're horizontal now. We're all on the same level. And I have as much to learn from you as and and um, so it's horizontal and also decentral. Like we'll, we'll try to decentralize so it doesn't revolve around this one person who's like helping everybody and teaching everybody. But we're all teaching each other and we can all question each other. Like it's very important to be able to question and to create like this culture of like I'm just because you're saying it doesn't mean it's true mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, because there is no such thing as like objective, you know, knowledge that is above. Uh, I mean, that's my school school of thought anyway. Like, I don't believe that there is like one uh, objective truth. I think there's truths with a capital, uh, sorry, truths with a small s at the end, like plural. 
and that um people when they when they like put out knowledge like it's deeply influenced by who they are where they're at etc so um yeah like in terms of like the ethics and accountability of leadership um how can we make that relationship that space more horizontal uh less centralized around one person and how can we also debunk this idea that the leader has all the answers Mm -hmm. so i think that's for me like embodying complexity and embodying contradictions is very important and I, I like to say this frequently on my social media is that I don't have all the answers so like please don't look at me like I'm an authority because I don't want to be an authority mm-hmm. uh, because then that would be like you know but it, it, it's it's complicated because sometimes I do want to be viewed as an authority because I'm like no I do know what I'm talking about like mm-hmm. stop stop trying to discredit me like I know what I'm talking about but it does just because um I know I have credentials and I know what I'm talking about doesn't mean like I'm right or that you have to believe me or I'm going to make you believe me. You know what I mean? Like it just, mm. so I think um, all of these things are important and I, I see, I see people in like the healing space and people in a position of guiding feel the pressure to have to have it all figured out or have to embody this like very clean and curated life because that's what people want but it's like no actually embody the mess embody the contradictions like share with us that you're also going through stuff because that's also going to help people realize that you're you're not on a pedestal and that you don't need to be in order to be in a position of like helping people out Mm -hmm. so framing framing the mentorship relationship not as a saviorism it's not a saviorism it's not like work with me because i'm going to save you mm-hmm. but which is you know that colonial thing of like the white man's burden with the colonized people be like i'm going to save you i'm going to pull you out of your like savagery mm-hmm. so it's not a saviorism but it's a uh form of support it's more mm-hmm. like actually like this world is really tough the world that we live in is really tough and hyper individualism makes you think that you need to just navigate this on your own Mm -hmm. and that you have to pull your own bootstraps but like hello you don't first of all it's not true like people who succeed in this world have support and have usually have a lot of support and it's not just support in terms of like emotional support it's also like capital and and generational wealth and all these things so like get as much support as you can and I'm here to support you and I have the qualifications and I you know, have experience supporting people and I'm happy to be there for you. So it's more of like a suggestion. It's more of an invitation. And the invitation is based on this idea of like, support yourself, you know, like Mm -hmm. get help. Like you need, it takes a village for you to succeed and you don't have to do it on your own. So, I mean, there's mm -hmm. like a, there's a couple, like a contradictory in my mind. Like, I don't think Chris and I have ever, in terms of our coaching, been like, we're going to be the savior. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <at all. laughs> nope, not me. <laughs> Versus like the, the, the idea that no one's coming to save you, mm-hmm. right? So no one's coming to save you means that you, you do have to take action. But then how do you balance that with the whole, like, you know, like you said, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality um, and where's the balance between not being a savior and no one's coming to save you? <laughs> like, it seems contradictory to me. And yet there there's like, where is that 
that lays in the middle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like I think as coaches, we want to be there to support and guide and, um, and people have the people that we work with, they, they have to do the hard work, mm-hmm. right? So there is that no one's coming to save you. Kristen and I are not coming to save you. Um, you do have to do it yourself, but, and with help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that we've always said is we don't want, we're not looking to be the coach with all the right answers. We want to be the coaches with the right questions. Um, because I think it is a lot about that self-critical thinking of really asking like, what do you want for yourself and for your life that can move people in the right direction? And there is no one right answer for anybody and certainly not one that we could give them because <laughs> we'll probably get it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, just the, those, those two things can feel almost contradictory um, that no one's coming to save you and we're not your, but also we're not your savior. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a really, I'm really gra- glad you brought this up um, because I think what happens with my content and my perspective is that I, push it a little bit more to the extreme of like let's think about society let's think about social dynamics because I find that the you know the spiritual healing life coaching guiding space tends to be super focused on the individual Mm -hmm. Um, so I try to balance it out but it's definitely like the role of the individual individual agency personal work is super super important so I think um, sometimes I think I I get mistaken for saying like, oh, like in um, uh, individual agency or like personal, like doing the work yourself, like doesn't matter. Not, not that you're saying that, but mm-hmm. I'm remembering a, a, a post that I, I did where mm-hmm. someone interpreted it that way. And so that made me reflect and, and realize like, okay, I am presenting a specific perspective to counterbalance, like how heavy the emphasis is on hyper-individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but what I'm hearing you say is like, okay, well, we're, we're trying to acknowledge like how big systems work and like how capitalism like shapes us and society shapes us and systemic barriers. But does that mean that we should not like try to like navigate that or should we shouldn't do the work to push back? Um, that's, that's a true contradiction, but it's also a very productive one because I think like there is, there is so much space for individual agency and um, like mindset work and working on the self and growth and all that stuff. I think that's super, super important, especially for um, minorities and people of color and women and queer folks who've been told societally that they're like less than or, or led to believe that, you know, they need to uh, shrink themselves or that, you know, so it's important for, to, to undo that. Like, I think there's a lot of, of um, work to be done to break generational patterns and create like, um, I don't know, like, like invite and support people in their like flourishing and in taking up space. Um, so I, I, I think that's very important. And um, so we can do that work and at the same time, add the social layer and say like, hey, um, maybe in this situation, it's not your fault. Like, it's not that you were not enough or that you didn't do the work, but like in the situation, it might've been like something social. So I think it kind of lifts the, the emphasis. What happens when 
the emphasis is always on the individual is that it can create blame when there's failure. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, you, I failed because I didn't, you know, like want it hard enough where I didn't, mm-hmm. there was like a subconscious block within me that didn't mm-hmm. want it hard, you know, things like that. Like that, that can be more of like the toxic spirituality stuff. Um, so if we're able to do that work on the self without falling into the blame of like, oh, well, if this thing didn't pan out for me, it's not because I, I'm not doing the work or like I'm, I'm bad or I'm lazy or something like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's why it's helpful also to have a mentor and be like, hey, it's not it's not your fault. Like you're doing great. Like sometimes it's good to have that source of nurturing support. So it's like a balance. I mean, I'm sure I, I love how you how you framed like the way that you work with your with your clients, because I, I can hear like the, the nurturing aspect to it and also like the deep concern. And it's like, yeah, you're not here to save anyone. Um, you're here to guide and support and nurture and, um, ask the right questions so that they can also like do, do the work. Mm -hmm. So it's like that, that balance, I think of reminding people that like there's personal, there's a personal scale and then there's a societal scale Mm -hmm. and what they can control is the personal. Um, but we can also work on the societal at the same time, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so how do we do that? (laughs) like how do we you know I'd love to snap my fingers and like you know everything is 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 perfect in the world but how do we go about um working to create that change and like and even in just like you know uh dismantling white supremacy and um you know uh systemic racism and all of the things that are um I would say holding back like people of color and the queer people and transgender people, like how do we as coaches or leaders or even content creators uh, impact those changes positively? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I think um, for me, it always starts with like education um, and listening and looking for the folks who are already doing that work. Mm-hmm. um so that it, like you know we don't have to reinvent the wheel and also remembering like okay well what what are my strengths like what can I bring to the space like what can I do um and it can be like small it doesn't have to be big but even like I just always remember that like activists um especially like folks of color that are like working and organizing like the biggest favor that we can do is to learn listen and learn Mm-hmm. and like actually like ask them okay like what is it that that we can do mm-hmm. um what is it that we can do to like start you know like helping out and um contribute so I think that that kind of lifts the pressure off also of having because leadership is is sometimes like taking a step forward and then sometimes it's like you know looking for the people who are already doing something and then and then supporting them in the process mm-hmm. um so like for instance like I think maybe like in, in a coaching space, I, I'm not sure what that can look like, but maybe uh, like doing trainings or getting trainings or offering trainings being like, Hey, like we want to work with this person because she has an amazing perspective. Like, and let, like, let's bring, let's bring her in. Like, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, um, also like if, if it's possible to like fund people or give, give your business to people that are like non-white um, in a predominantly white space mm-hmm. um, or, you know, like, for for life coaching like maybe I don't know if there's like scholarships available to people of color to become life coaches to create that opportunity like there's a lot of different uh layers of 
getting involved in organizations starting also with like your the communities that you live in like the cities that you live in um I know like in for us like Canadians like um make actively making sure that first of all we're not participating in the erasure of like indigenous people mm-hmm. um I I know for like Americans as well but like for me in Canada like indigenous people are like such a huge part of the population and they are they still like exist and thr- like you know they exist you know I feel mm-hmm. like in in the U.S. they've been so like um I think like the percentage of like indigenous people is like point something percent, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in Canada, the population is larger and we just, I don't know, like for me, indigenous erasure is huge. And I like, it starts with knowing the history, uh, knowing the history of the um, indigenous, indigenous like tools and beliefs that are being appropriated and then also, like, anytime I have a platform, I try to amplify Indigenous voices. Like, I just literally now with my platform, I just, like, funnel people into all these, like, POC Indigenous creators that I like. And I'm like, hey, follow them. They're doing great work. Work with them. You know, fund them. Donate to them. You know, things like that. So it's like, I think with a platform comes a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, these are just, like, some thoughts. But mostly, like, yeah, I think for me, like, it's also a lot of, like, listening and educating myself um and like not taking up space where it doesn't I don't need to Mm -hmm. and just like passing my platform on Mm -hmm. to other people to take up space I think that's a big one too um because I think oftentimes we come in on as a white person come in on an issue that is not our own and we try to add our voice rather than amplify the voices of the people that are actually dealing with the issue or the leaders in those spaces um Mm -hmm. i notice that a lot on like different social media platforms right so um yeah the the idea of amplifying the voices and the leaders in those communities that are already doing something rather than trying to start conversations of our own with issues that don't have anything to do with us if that makes sense so I'm trying to say yeah like um yeah if you're, if you're having conversations like um you know like around decolonization or like indigenous appropriation like get people um to participate in those conversations with you you know mm-hmm. um I I use the metaphor of like you know how all these like men do podcasts and talk about or not just podcasts but like <laughs> they like to like talk about like their role as men mm-hmm. um, in society and they're trying to be like enlightened men and it's like there's not a single woman in that space like to talk about like you know patriarchy and it's like mm-hmm. okay so you're just gonna have a group of men talk about like your role as men but like not at, at all engage with women mm-hmm. and like your role and how you're impacting women so like the same metaphor is like well okay if we're trying to talk about like decolonization and um uh, you know, like, I think it's, it's, it's important and soothing and comforting to have spaces that are like, you know, say like, just for like white folks, to like process, that's important. But also it's, also, it's also important to have spaces where you're working with um, POC and black mm-hmm. folks and indigenous folks in like decolonizing. Um, I think they are two pronged, you know, they go together. Um, so yeah, so I have like some, some creators that I recommend and funnel people to that are 
specifically for white folks to reconnect with their like heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are like mm-hmm. white creators that like are trying to practice a form of like decolonized spirituality. So I think they're setting out a great, they're great role models out there mm-hmm. um, that are trying to do the work. And they're like, they're also like, they, they're on my platform, they engage with me and they've studied with me and they're like clearly very hungry to do like good work. And then uh, the, the second pronged approach is, you know, working with um, creators, content creators, healers, coaches that are non-white that also can, you know, offer a very important and constructive uh, perspective. Because again, it takes a village. So mm-hmm. like the idea that one person is going to be like one coach can be everything to everybody. Uh, or like be everything to that one person is not possible mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah well and uh, we we had kind of started talking about this before we um started recording but the idea of um we've we've sort of touched on cultural appropriation here of like of white people having you know this lack of culture or trying to reconnect um rather than appropriating other uh, culture spirituality which we see a lot in in our space uh for sure um and so i mean you mentioned that you have some uh, content creators that like are doing that um anything else that you could share around that kind of that idea of like i know because we kind of started talking about it earlier but um you know as what we had said it was like as immigrants coming to this country or mm-hmm. either Canada or the U.S. and completely losing mm-hmm. touch with uh, any of our culture that we had uh, from before from wherever we're originally from um, mm-hmm. it feels very much like I can only speak personally like that we're like cultureless um, and um, trying to connect some way with with something and i think that's where a lot of the cultural appropriation comes from because they'll see other cultures and they're like that really resonates with me so i'm just going to mm-hmm. take i'm just going to take that for myself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and yeah what are your thoughts on on that yeah well um i think what happens with colonization is that um it hurt it, it hurts everybody um, although it like also like benefits a certain group of population, but it, it hurts everybody in the sense that like colonization is also rooted in this like rational system. Uh, mm-hmm. This like idea of rationality uh, is, you know, originated. I mean, it, it, it's, it comes from, we see it all the way back in like Aristotle and Plato, but I think rationality is a very important part of the, I think it was like a tool of colonization in the sense that um, European colonizers saw themselves as rational, whereas the people that they colonized, they portrayed as irrational, as childlike, as not having fully developed rational capabilities. So rationality was a huge part of that way of, of, of facilitating and legitimizing the colonial enterprise. So Part, the thing is with rationality is that it also eliminates the possibility for irrational or, you know, spiritual things that are not seen as rational. So that's first of all, like, um, and second of all, the only space that, you know, European colonizing cultures allowed for non-rationality was religion and Christianity. 
it was Christianity. So that was the only space where you could be like a little bit mystical. Um, but even then it was very codified, like, you know, very codified way of practicing spirituality was this religious thing. And Christianity was also used as part of the colonial enterprise as a way to legitimize colonization. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you have religion and you have rationality. And what that does is that it also, it kind of like slowly eroded all European cultural practices that were not rational that were pagan, that were animistic, that were rooted in the land. Um, so those those ultimately like all died um, eventually because it's like Christianity just like superseded everything. It just it just rooted itself and it became like the dominant form of spirituality. And then everything else is blasphemous. Mm -hmm. So um, you have that. And with colonization, um, when when people when Europeans started colonizing the rest of the world, they also demonized uh, these like spiritual mystical practices uh, because they were you know like it was blasphemous. So therefore, you know, as they were trying to make Christianity become more dominant, and they're trying to Christianize and convert the colonized peoples, they were basically saying like, yeah, this is the, this medicine woman shaman thing, or this, like, you know, this prayers, like let's eliminate that. Let's. And so people were demonized and punished for having like their indigenous local mystical practices. So, at, so the whole world was affected by colonization because like mystic, mysticism was like eliminated or erased, you know? So in some places like that mysticism, uh, you know, survived a little bit, uh, maybe like morphed or, you know, parts of it survived, but, you know, like in some other places, it just completely like disappeared. So mm -hmm. all this to say um, that even like, for instance, for me, like I am Lebanese and Egyptian and like Egypt is a place of, of deep magic. It's really magical and very like energetically powerful and, um, but it you really have to like my grandma is very christian like very like religious and like you can't talk about spirits around her but like i'll talk to other people about spirits and they'd be like yeah 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 totally spirits like yeah yeah like i even saw one the other day like it really <laughs> depends like you have a very you have a variety you have a variety of people um that like will will have different positions um and levels of like experience with like non-christian spirituality or you know in the case of like egypt it can also be like the dominant religion which is islam so um but then there's also parts of religion that are like more mystical like if you think of like sufism or something mm -hmm. but anyway the the point that i'm trying to get to like besides this like general history that i'm drawing about like um colonization rationality and mysticism um is that you know, like white folks are not the only ones who have been divorced from their spirituality mm -hmm. or have been divorced from their spiritual practices, some more than others, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, um, yeah, there's different, different groups might have like a tighter connection to their spirituality. Um, and for them, for some, it's more obvious. It's like, yeah, like the Orishas or like, yeah, like, you know, Hinduism or whatever, but, um, so part of the project of reconnecting to one's specific heritage, to me, actually also involves a process of excavation, because you have to go back to a time where these practices were embraced and not to you have to go back in time to before these practices were demonized. Mm -hmm. And it's about um, 
it's about reconnecting to one's heritage and to one's like ancestral homelands. So I think ancestor work and ancestor connection uh, and like connecting to the culturally specific ancestors, like that can be really interesting, especially for white people in North America, because it's important to remember that whiteness is not neutral. It's not, we think of it as neutral. We think of it as having no color and, you know, juxtaposed against whiteness, you have like ethnic ethnicities, you have race because these have color. So we want to actually like debunk this idea that white whiteness has no culture or whiteness has, has no cultural valency and say instead, no, actually like there is culture, let's excavate it, let's bring it back. Because once you do that, and once you connect to your cultural heritage, then there may be, there's no need to look at other cultures and say like, okay, well, I'm going to start, you know, burning Palo Santo, even though it has nothing to do um, with my culture. I don't fully understand it. Or even worse, you know, the whole um, industrialization or commodification of closed indigenous practices like ayahuasca that are not open. These are not open practices. And yet there's entire tourism, spiritual tourism industry um that talks about that um a, a creator that i absolutely love um activated living is a guarani indigenous um amazing person based in uh based in california and she does like really good content about ayahuasca and talks about it so she's a really good like reference point for that and i learned a lot from her um about the spiritual tourism that happens in like latin america around ayahuasca mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. so so all this to say like it's important for white folks to remember they do have culture it's about but it's harder to get to get back to uh, but it's important to get back to that so that there is no like um so that we can actually be like transparent about the the appropriation the commodification that happens because what happens when like something as you know spiritual and closed as ayahuasca becomes a commodity and it becomes an entire like capitalistic industry it becomes destroyed. It destroys mm-hmm. it for the for indigenous people who actually practice it. Mm-hmm. So it becomes expensive. It becomes like um, messy. It becomes really messy. So um, it's important to reconnect to the heritage, even though it's hard. Mm-hmm. And even for me, mm-hmm. like it's hard because I'm like, you know, colonization really erased and demonized a lot of the traditions that were in place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure that's the case for a lot of like colonized countries. So colonized people also have to do the work of excavating. And it's going to be hard too, because some of these practices may have disappeared or need to be like, really like, you're going to have to like tease it out of your like great grandma to, <laughs> to pull out, you know, like I was just asking my dad, I was like, so, cause like evil eye is like really strong um, for us, but you know, evil eye has also been like something that's been like appropriated. Like, mm-hmm. um, so I was like, yeah, like, like daddy, like, do you know how to, how to reject an evil eye like how do you know when you've been touched by the evil eye and do you know how to reject it and or like push it back or like undo it and he was like no I don't know but like your grandma would have known <laughs> he was like maybe uh, ask your ask your aunt like she might know mm-hmm. but like I'm shy about asking because like it's not Christian to ask that you know like mm-hmm. it's not Christian like but you know in so many places um spirituality coexisted with with Christianity and like mm-hmm. think there's some things that like my grandma probably did that were spells but mm-hmm. like she just did them um things like that you know that like coexisted Mm -hmm. with christianity so Mm -hmm. so it's hard like that work that work is hard but like that's the part of spirituality that i'm drawn to Mm -hmm. um and i think that's the part of spirituality that's also like going to be revolutionary because it helps us like um it helps us question colonization it helps us like 
push back against like the effects of colonization by saying like actually I'm gonna I'm gonna do that excavation for myself mm-hmm. and for like that purpose of reconnecting with my ancestors mm-hmm. yeah thank you for that mm-hmm. um okay we're we're kind of running out of time yeah we, we could go on forever <laughs> we, yeah. on here. we want to respect yeah. your time yeah. as well um <laughs> where can our listeners go to uh, find out more about you and what you're up to yeah absolutely um if you have tiktok definitely follow me on there my account is um it's classic stuff that's my handle i have the same handle for instagram uh i offer courses so uh mm-hmm. i offered live workshops this summer i did a whole decolonial summer school um and some of those courses those workshops are available the replays are available and i know um the replays are just as enjoyable as the live class like what I've, from what i've learned from students like students really are liking the replays so um you can go to my podia i have a podia community and a podia workshop platform so it's basically my website is it's classicstuff.podia.com which you can also find from my like link in bio if you follow me on social Mm -hmm. so those workshops are going to be they're available for replay you can purchase them anytime and if you join my newsletter then you will probably you will be post i'll keep you posted on like the next time i do a live workshop um yeah and my courses like feel very much like a college course they're dense um they're really rich in information so I I don't know I'm like kind of thinking about maybe offering like a full-fledged like semester long or month-long course um at some point we'll see if there's like enough interest to do that because then I'll be able to like really like assign readings and homework Mm -hmm. and I think it could be really really fun to do that absolutely so yeah well, I just want to thank you so much for mm-hmm. coming on here and uh, sharing so much with us. I know we learned, I learned a lot mm-hmm. um, and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation thank and <laughs> speaking with you and like, thank you for, for continuing to ask these questions and like, you know, be really interested in the project of decolonizing, you know, the coaching space as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, subscribe and share with your friends. You can also find us on Instagram at Pirate Living Podcast to keep up with the latest episodes, awesome guests, and bonus clips. Hop in and say hi. We love chatting with fellow pirates. You can also reach out to us to learn more about our individual and group coaching programs. And keep creating good trouble.